This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. At American Public University, we believe higher education is not one size fits all. That's why we offer 200 modern programs that build on your knowledge and fit your schedule. Because we believe universities should adapt to the needs of students, not the other way around. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Online classes start every month. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started at MyHealthPolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for. And done. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com and done. Switch to a better plan. And Michael. I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face. And done. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to compare top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans. Or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. Welcome to the interview. My guest today is University of Toronto professor George Day. Professor Day is an author of several books focusing on education and has written extensively about the intersection of race, class, and gender in the anti-racism discourse. He has a PhD in anthropology from the University of Toronto and a master's in the same from McMaster University. He has taught at OISE and has won countless honors and awards. With the backdrop of the players' strike, we discuss the course of action in the fight for social justice. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Mr. Day, for joining us and uh, talking about the situation uh, in the United States right now. The, the NBA has suspended play uh, for Wednesday and Thursday nights. Their playoff schedule has been on pause as the players have taken some time to reflect on what to do next, given the situation in Wisconsin. And everybody here is kind of figuring out how to proceed. Even the players, the NBA, uh, have had several meetings over the last couple of days figuring out what to do next. On one hand, you have this burden on you on to do something, but at the same time, you don't necessarily know how exactly to act right. to make the biggest mm-hmm. impact. Given the situation, g- given the power that the NBA players have, uh, they are well-known, they are popular, people watch them, uh, the NBA is a very massively popular league. What are some of the some of the top strategies that the NBA Players Association, the players themselves, can adopt to maximize the impact? No, I'm I'm glad you started by recognizing the the impact that the the players have on the public. Right? I mean, they have fans, they are loved, and I think people appreciate what they do. Uh, that is a more reason why they also have to speak out and and let their voices be heard very, very clearly. And I think the whole question of having a plan of action 
put in place, right? Uh, given that what we're talking about, we are talking about long history of these problems affecting our society. And I think it's about time that they did themselves sit down to plan about, we want to see this action by this time. If it is not done, withdrawing our services, because our services cannot just be for entertainment or to support the, 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 the needs and the interests of our consumers. We also have a conscience. We are, we, we, we are bodies who matter. And I think it's very, very important to have the plan in place. And part of the plan could be, for example, coming out with what they want to see done. How do you address systemic problems of racism? How do we ensure, for example, that when we look at the, the management, the leadership, that there are measures in place to ensure representation, which is fair, adequate, right? And, and, and address some of these concerns about systemic injustices and, and racism in, in, in sports and beyond. Um, I also think as, as players, right, they need to also have a plan to put their wealth into the communities, right? I, I think there's something that you said about uh, you put your money where your mouth is. And I think this is where when you look at the communities, right, there's many of our communities that need, they are under-resourced. These associations can decide to have a plan whereby they devote some funding, how they can use their, their, their funding some of the proceeds from their, their professional activities, earmark them towards the development of these communities. It could be in housing, it could be in education, it could be in health. So they have to have a plan in place uh, to do that. That uh, Well, at some point, we need to devote a certain percentage of what we are earning, not necessarily the players themselves, but also what the association is earning into community development. And this community development will be towards health, education, housing, etc. The NBA already has programs and the NBA Players Association already has programs that, that do contribute to the communities to a, to a, in large amounts. To a large extent, that is happening. It can certainly happen more and more. Uh, I mean, if, if, they, if they dedicate, you know, 2% of their salaries, maybe they should dedicate 5% of their salaries or whatever the numbers are. But uh, the conversation right now is beyond just what you can do as individuals. It, it's how do you maximize impact? Because one argument that uh, that has come up is that um, why is it the NBA players who are becoming the voice of uh, social justice? Should this not be coming from politicians or people in charge or the government institutions or uh, or social or social work institutions should shouldn't they be leading this charge and why is it up to the nba uh, to actually lead this because that's what it feels like right now and i think that's where some of the frustration comes from well i i disagree i i don't think it's either or this is a systemic problem a systemic problem also requires that the answer be systemic in other words it has to be from every end every corner Every space, every avenue, we all have to be on board. So it's not just the politicians. Of course, the politicians have a, a, a strong role to play, but I think our, our, our professionals also have that role to play, and I'm glad it, they have been playing. We can leave the state institutions on the hook on that, but I think this has to be a collective undertaking. You don't have to wait for somebody's foot to be on somebody's neck for this to be done, uh, because sometimes what happens is that, oh, we don't hear these things, everything, everything is fine, but it's not. So I agree with you, and I think let's take it as end with, not either or. I think it has to be end with. And we are all implicated. We are all implicated. 
The politicians uh, have proven to be largely ineffective at this point. Yes. So how do you, given the resources of the NBA and, and the NBA players, how do you, you mentioned earlier creating a plan, how do you actually put enough pressure on government institutions so they do more? Because boycotting games is is a temporary measure of getting attention on yourself. It doesn't actually solve anything. Yes, for, a, for two to three days, you might attract a lot of attention and people might look and, and people on Twitter might retweet things. I mean, that's that's about the extent of impact you might be able to make. But how do you actually make longstanding impact and actually actually pressure politicians in? Because it's so far, every strategy has been largely ineffective, I find. Well, yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree too, but I also want to take it from another angle. Like, uh, there have been cases where if boycotts are sustained, they do impact. Of course, if you're going to do it just two days, three days, and call it off, then everything will return to what it is. But if you're going to sustain it, make people aware that you're serious about what you're saying. Right? This, something has to give. Uh, you can't tell me that the politicians will just be okay if, for example, there's a way that the, the income generation is being affected. Don't be concerned about it. It's, it's just like sometimes the measures we put in place are temporary, like you said, and then we come back to square one, and then we continue as usual. But if we sustain our initiative, if we sustain the pressure, and it hits where it's supposed to hit, I think people will sit down and, and, and take, take a look. Right? I, I don't think when we look at Montgomery boycott in the U.S., if it wasn't sustained over time, it would have worked. It needs to be sustained. It cannot just be one or two days, and then everything will be fine, and then people go back to there. There has to be some seriousness. This thing cannot just be one day or two days. We, we are serious about maintaining the, the ball court if we are not going to do anything about it. And I bet you something will be done. Have there been successful protests that have actually brought about permanent change or lasting change, at least, across the world. I mean, you're a renowned academic and you have a long history of research in your portfolio. Like, if you look back, what are some of the key elements that need to be present for longstanding change to have effect? Yeah, I think when we look at it in terms of the civil rights movement, the suffrage, those are just initiatives that actually made some changes. But I think we have to look at it this way that everything we do, we need always to be very uh, keep our eyes on the ball and not just let off the hook. So when you ask me about what are some historical lessons we can learn from, right? Uh, I would want to put it this way, that nothing that we have achieved as a community has been through people sitting down, people have to fight to make it possible, right? So if you look at it that way, uh, we need to continue the this, this struggle. We need to continue to fight. We need to continue to raise our voices. We need to continue to protest. And it's not just protest. There are other things that can be done. And we need to bring all to bear. Like what? What specifically do you think we should be doing? I, I think holding people accountable. I think holding people accountable uh, for doing what they're supposed to do and not doing it. Which people specifically here? When leadership, if leaders decide, okay, we're going to give you this, and they don't deliver. What's the point in continuing to, to give the, the power to them? So this is what I mean. It's just that we have to bring the commitment to it. We cannot be sneaking about it. We have to bring the commitment to it. And it's everyone. Everyone has to be. I think, look, in our own homes, continue to have these conversations about what needs to be done. It's itself trying to deal with the problem. 
It's not somebody else. It's our collective problem. We have to deal with it. Do, do we have the tools to deal? I mean, you, you say that, uh, you know, we have to, like, if we have a leader who is not delivering on the promises, you, you remove them and get somebody more effective in. But when, when you look at the African-American situation in the United States, they don't necessarily have the power to remove people for, from who are not doing their job because they don't really have the vote. They're marginalized. If you look at the gerrymandering situations in the South, it, it, it's it's not like it's, like it's it's a question of, hey, get up and vote the guy who's not doing his job out. It, it has to be more than that. So you you're asking a people who are powerless to bring about change. How do you do that? No, 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 no. I'm not asking the, pow- the powerless. No, no. no. Don't make this look like it's just... The, listen, part of the problem is that those who have the power are not doing anything. And that's why they have to be part of the conversation. But then we cannot say just because they are not doing anything, we are also going to sit down and, not let, and, and let it go on. We have no choice. We have to speak out. We have to raise this issue. So when you talk about, say... Looking at the states, the voting issue and, and that, right? It is true. But this is why also, when we look at those who put up their names, the parties who put up their constitution for, for elections, we look at it critically and see who is going to be able to produce the change we want. See, I agree with you. I think sometimes what the system does is that it puts impediments in the way. And the more people struggle, the more they fight, they are actually left very, very cynical in that. And I agree with that, and I hear that. You can't put the honors on the powerless. You can't put the honors on those people who are being uh, marginalized. They, this has to be something that those in power have to look at it critically. But what I'm saying is that do, those who are marginalized who cannot just say, well, if those in power are not doing it, we are just going to just sit down. No. And part of that conversation is that we have to be aware of what the, the nature of the problem is and see where we target our responses and where we target our strategies. If you're a black person in in, in the United mm-hmm. States and you're seeking mm-hmm. social justice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, w- one, one common solution that comes up is vote. We've been voting for a long, long time. And mm-hmm. I, I think you would agree with me that the rate of change that the voting process, the electoral process brings is, is definitely slow. And I'm not yes. sure people have the patience for the lethargic and glacial pace that that process works at. Don't we need something which is a little bit more dramatic than just go and vote the right politician in? We need something dramatic. But I also believe that we also have to work at different angles. When you talk of something dramatic, absence of a revolution, what would that be? And this is why I think we have to look at it in the small arts and the big arts. We need to do that. Part of the whole problem is that sometimes we keep saying this and itself, it becomes injury. It, gives us, it makes us more disempowered because we don't see the change we want and we become frustrated. That's what it's designed for, to make it that way. And we have to see it and say, you know what, you want to put me down, I'm not going to let you put me down. If you want to put me under the, the, the carpet, I'm not going to be under the carpet. I'm always, you're always going to hear from me. You're always going to hear from me. And I know it is, it is a lot to ask for. I know that it's a lot to ask for. But we have no choice. We have no choice. Because that is what it's designed for. It's designed to make us powerless. It's designed to make us apathy. Like, say, okay, you know what? I give up. I'm not going to do anything. Right? Because people are not prepared to, so I'm not going to give up anything. What does the revolution look like? Is the revolution happening at the the voting booth? What does a revolution look like? I'm seriously asking this (laughs) question because... 
Uh, I, I've actually been part of revolutions, <laughs> you know, uh, back back in the old country. But uh, in the United States, I don't actually know what it, what it looks like because I feel all the systems are so permanent in nature that they are unmovable. And that's part of the frustration yeah. uh, that the yeah. NBA players oh, are facing is that is that they don't know how to act. They have all these resources, fame, money, attention, but they have no mm-hmm. idea how to actually yeah. m- put this into motion and, and do something with it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And this is something different is possible. And what it calls for is that we cannot give up. We have to think through collectively. Uh, and those who want to come along, come along, right? We are always going to get pushback. I think what, some of the things we're talking about is getting pushback, right? Uh, and it's very, very frustrating. People become very, very upset, very angry. And, and in many cases, they, they, they just give up. We cannot afford that. And I, I think when you ask the question, what does the revolution look like, right? It, it's, it has to be manufactured collectively. What vision do we want? What features do we want? And how do we collectively arrive at that? What, what do we want? What is it specifically that you, uh, as, a, as a social activist, would ask for? Uh, let's assume that the, the politicians that are in place have your best interest at heart and are willing to okay. change. You, as the oppressed in this case, if you will, what are the, the, the two or three things that you would ask for if, if I gave George Day, uh, professor at the University of Toronto, all the power in the world and said, ask for these three things today? What are those three things mm-hmm. that you would ask for? I think one is about basic humanity. I want my humanity to be valued, to be acknowledged, and to be respected. I'm human, that my life is worth every other life. I also want to be able to live I also want to be able to live, and that means then that to have the resources, whether it's health, education, employment, to be able to live, to be able to breathe and live, right? That is that that is uh, also something that I, I I would say. I want a very healthy environment. When I talk about environment, I'm not just talking about the, the physical. I'm also talking about the social, where we live in a community where we respect each other, we, we share the resources in a way that is. It shows decency and human respect. We don't have COVID disproportionately affecting our communities. When we talk of unemployment, we don't want our communities to be disproportionately affected by unemployment, housing, health issues, education. How we share these resources that we have in a way that makes every life worth living. Uh, like one of the questions that uh, that came up uh, was that like what is the responsibility? of uh, NBA owners in this situation. So NBA owners are predominantly white um, mm-hmm. and uh, they are they, they make billions of dollars. Uh, NBA players mm-hmm. make millions of dollars where, where the owners mm-hmm. make billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the call to action, even when I asked you the question earlier, you started off by saying, well, the, the NBA players who make millions of dollars should be able to give a percentage of their whatever salary to social justice causes. No, no, when I, when I talk about it, I met all of them. To me, I'm talking of the association itself, the association, those, the owners. How can you expect the players just uh, do their bit and then the owners get saved? Who are making the money? It's not the players. It's not just the players. It's the ownership. If the players decide, look, we are not going to play, the owners will be concerned about their money and find a way to address their issues. It's because sometimes what happens is that, oh, the owners think, oh, the players need the money, so just don't worry. Well, one or two days, they'll come back and play, and that'll be fine. 
Uh, and I'm not belittling the efforts of the players. Now, I think we have a long history of sports. People have been very, very political, right? We talk about Muhammad Ali, good examples of that, right? So, so I, I know that there's the history that we can learn from. Uh, I'm talking of the association itself, particularly the, the, the owners who actually benefit from the services of their players, who benefit from the labor of their players, who benefit from the market. They have a big responsibility to pay. Right? They have a big responsibility. One of the things I talked about is that there are different approaches. You can decide to focus on the leadership, the management, but you can also decide to do something which empowers the marginalized or oppressed to understand their own existence. There's a tendency to just make us give up so that everything will continue as if nothing is wrong. Let's, let's switch gears to the police. Uh, and uh, the, the latest uh, incident, obviously, is uh, is the shooting of uh, Jacob Blake uh, in uh, in Wisconsin, and that has sparked uh, round two of uh, you know of the outrage that's down south. I think if the uh, if if the George Floyd situation had kind of quote unquote died down, and frankly, it it, it sort of had. Let's, let's be frank. I mean, people didn't care about it as much as they did two months ago, and that, that's part of the problem. Is that we are very re- reactionary, and people get inflamed. And when a person is inflamed, they're very motivated to do something. But the, 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 by definition, getting inflamed, there's also a de-inflammation part and people forget about things. So now that we have some some uh, some attention and, and some momentum, if you will, in, in the struggle, and the police, again, is at the center of this uh, of, of this shooting, what, what are your observations of how policing is currently happening in the United States. There's some calls to defund the police. Uh, there's calls to like eliminate the police in, in certain cities or, or across the nation even. What are your observations of how the police department in the United States is run? And what are some of the changes that you would like to see specifically happen in the U.S. so that there's not so much controversy around around policing? Uh, I think it's about reallocating resources into different areas. When we look at rich neighborhoods, they are not over-policed. And there's a reason why they are not over-policed, because they have the resources that have been targeted to these communities. So what you need to do is to redirect resources in a way that will make policing. It's a different way of looking at policing. If you had some community workers, some social workers in there, they will not be needed. Some of these problems don't, don't require that police surveillance. I think definitely there's something not, not working right. And I think it's very, very important that we listen, right? And not just become very, very defensive about it. You can't solve a problem when we don't admit that you have a problem, when we become so resistant to any change, right? That's just a problem in itself. So I think my sense is that I think we need to look critically about what we mean by policing. That will ensure that lives are not lost, that every life counts, every life is respected and valued. And I think that is very, very important. I think we have to find different ways to talk about how we, we, we relate with each other, how we respect each other, how we are able to share power, how we are able to address the issues, the concerns that we have. We can't just simply talk about issues as if we have only one way of solving them. There are different ways of finding solutions to the problems we have. And I think to me, policing can be one way that we look at it. That we, can there be a different way of dealing with some of these issues that simply saying, let's put more police resources into these areas. Law and order and also maintain human decency. And, and I think that's how we need to talk about it in, in that context. Mm. 
Why, why is that so hard to do? Because everything you're saying makes complete logical sense. Some of the things that you talked about is, uh, is you know, like like funding neighborhoods which which require help. You're talking about human decency. You're talking about equality. These are n- nobody you know in, in in civil conversation will disagree with any of these points. Yet they seem to be missing for decades and decades in the United States. Like, what are some of the like some of the barriers that you're seeing that allow these things to not be present in in in, in the in the U.S. and even in Canada for that matter? Inability and the refusal to listen. We have to hear people's pain. We have to hear the voices of concern. We have to hear where people are coming from. Let's see people when they are in front of us and treat them as human. Part of the problem that we have is that uh, when we, we see a problem, we think it's somebody else's problem. When it is our problem, it is our collective problem. And so we address it. And we have to have that, that ability to listen and hear the pain, the suffering that people are, are speaking about. Sometimes people are so complacent. Oh, they're whining, they're complaining, they're not grateful and, and that. I always talk about people who always want to see change. People fight for justice because they love their community. They want their community to be better than what they are. It's not they want to destroy their communities. Nobody wants to destroy their communities, especially if the community is working for them. If the communities are not working for them, they become concerned. So when you want to talk about their community, they will ask you, what community are you talking about? Because I don't see myself in that community. I don't feel I'm part of that community. The power of listening, the power of acting, the power of hearing voices, the power of hearing the pain, the suffering, the anger, the anguish, the despair, we need to hear that and act on that. It cannot just be consumption. I cannot bear my soul, my voice, my concern only for consumption to take place. We need to act on that. We need to show sincerity that we do care, we are very sincere, and we hear people, and we want to act and create a better world. Not just for them, but for all of us. There's a lot of denial, there's a lot of silence. Sometimes we are even being attacked just for raising a very legitimate concern because people want to hold on to their power. They want to hold on to their privilege. And, and, and that is a part of the problem. We need to hear where people are coming from, where they have been, and where they want us to go. It's even costly. It's even injurious. It's spiritual and emotional. It causes emotional damage and spiritual damage when people have to speak out on the same things every now, every now, every now. I don't enjoy making all these comments. That in itself is emotional damage. And we need to be honest with ourselves and deal with that. Uh, once we bring that honesty, we bring sincerity and we bring and the intent to act and to bring about change, we are all going to be better for it. To be in a community and to complain about something in the community, it means you care. That's why you're complaining. Because you think we can be better than what we are. And let people have the courage. I see the young people on the streets now. It gives me hope. And sometimes I wonder, oh, please let them not lose hope. Also, please don't let them become so disappointed because they go out in the streets, they protest, and then everything comes back to the same thing. People are yearning for something to be done. The leadership, right? And, and, and I use leadership in a very broad sense because to me, everybody who is in a position of power and influence, in a position of leadership, they need to hear, they need to act. And those two who are not in those positions of leadership cannot just simply say if the leaders are not doing it and they are just going to throw up their hands. We need also to continue 
the struggle. We need to continue to raise our voices and to raise our, our concerns and the issues. You, you mentioned a, a few great points there, and I want to come back to like three of them in particular. Uh, the, the first thing you mentioned is, is, is we have to recognize our privilege uh, that we live in, uh, and, and, and only once we do that and then we empathize with the communities where that privilege doesn't exist can we some, do something about it. It's very difficult for somebody, uh, I'm talking about the wealthy in the United States or Canada, as you said, to change the way they think about things because the current system does not give them any incentive to change. And I think in any human psychology 101 course, the first thing they teach you is that, well, if you don't have the incentive to change, you are very unlikely to change. So to appeal to someone's moral undertones or their or their heart and go, listen, you should, you should give up 25% of your corporate profits because that community needs it. I mean, that's a, that's a completely fair ask. Like, I get where it's coming from. But do you see why the other person on the other side of that question will just say, no, nah, man, I'm not going to change. I mean, why would I? The, the current system has made me profitable. You're asking me to do something which is to my detriment. If you see that to a detriment, and that's the problem. But if you see it more as, okay, we are in a community, that whatever resources that you got, right, it wasn't just simply through your individual effort. Others have to contribute to make it possible. I am what I am because we are. So don't, don't see it as a zero-sum game. We want to create a better society for all. We have to begin to ask ourselves about what is the source of our privilege, what is the history behind that privilege, and be able to address it in a way uh, that doesn't make it a zero-sum game. So that it's like I'm simply giving up. If you're giving something, you're giving for the collective well-being, and that includes yourself to have that, that thinking around it. And we, we haven't spent too much time on that because we see it more in terms of there's a whole cause about individualism, that it's mine, 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 and it's never ours. The, the second thing you mentioned there, you mentioned the word courage, and, and I always equated courage with action in the face of fear. And when I see the, mm -hmm. when, when, mm -hmm. when I see the protesters out there right now, um, you know, I, 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 I view that as a courageous action because, oh, yes. you know, and, and, and I just want to echo what you said is that mm -hmm. it, it makes me, it makes me happy that there is an uprising against yes. injustice. And if, yes. if there's one thing that I feel really good about in this, in this gigantic, you know, mess that's, that's happening is that there actually is action on the streets. And, and I firmly believe that this is my opinion. Obviously, it's take it for what it's worth is that without actual action on the streets, you're not going to get any change. And, and the fact that I that's do. happening, you, you must see that as, as a massive, massive positive. You have to be amazed about seeing the youth on the street. And, 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 that, and that has to give you hope. That has to give you hope. And we cannot stifle that hope. We cannot stifle it. And what we can do is to look at that courage and say, rather than punish them, you're going to reward them for the sacrifice they're making. And the reward is not a, ben a benefit to themselves. It's a benefit to the collective to see that way. That's a benefit to the collective. And they want something better to be done. We are better than this. That when, when people want change, rewarding that resistance for change encourages us to look at where people are coming from. So rather than punish them, right? Rather than say, that, oh, they are troublemakers. Right? Of course, I'm not talking about going on the streets to do damage, right? I'm not talking about that. But there's a tendency in our society to only look at that and not look at the broader picture of what is going on. 
right? So rewarding that resistance which means there are people who see injustice and they want to fight it, they want to resist that. And that must be something that we should appreciate, we should welcome, and rather than punish them for it. We have a younger generation now that actually is speaking on these issues about the environment, they're speaking about these issues about racial injustice, they're speaking about uh, uh, sexism, homophobia, classism, and that they are speaking out on, on that. Right? They are protesting all these causes. And I think that is very productive for, for our societies. Right? It's productive. Uh, we need to harness that energy and, and, and not let the youth become so disappointed that we know after all what we did, society is not listening. Right? That can be so dangerous if that happens. It can be so uh, unproductive if that happens. We have to look at these voices of concern as something that we need to work with rather than dismiss them, rather than to malign them, rather than to put a negative lens on them. And, and, and that, is, that is a problem. You don't want people to uh, feel discouraged. Uh, and, and it's easy in our society because we have a short attention span. A lot has happened, but not a lot has changed. A lot has happened, but not a lot has changed. And, and I think we need to correct that. That lot that has happened must lead to change. And, and I think when we don't see that change happening, we don't see that change happening. People become frustrated. Sometimes it becomes least to apathy. It's also spiritually wounding, emotionally. How many times do you say, oh my God, what else can I do again? What do you think is the state of African-American leadership? Or, or let's call it, you know, let's, let's go North America on this one. Because when, when we look at African-American, African-Canadian leaders, the same old group kind of comes to mind, right? <laughs> it's, it's the same yeah. old guys. And frankly, they're a little sleazy looking at this point. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where where does the black leadership come from? Like, do we do, do we look at NBA players as is LeBron James the next leader? Is it Kawhi Leonard? Is that where the next uh, uh, black leader will come from? Like. I love LeBron, I, and I love what he's doing. I think it's great. Uh, he's speaking out a lot, and he's putting his money away. It's matters. But my conception of leadership is not individual. It's collective. When, when I say collective leadership, I don't think you have one person going around saying, let's do that. So I think to me, the collective leadership doesn't mean that you don't have individuals who are going to come out and, 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 and make statements and, and that. But I think we have to move into the notion of collective leadership, whereby... Everybody sees themselves as a leader, and we are also followers. We are collectively followers. I think it, it, it makes it organic. It makes it relational. Uh, when you talk about black leadership, sometimes the leadership has lost touch with their own communities, right? You cannot talk about leadership in terms of only the adult or the elderly. I think we have to talk about leadership also in terms of the youth. How do we get the youth off of Twitter and onto the streets? <laughs> Good question. Social media, right, has some positive and negative. Use the social media in a way that brings an awareness to the issues and say, you know what, this is happening, we need to do something about it. Communicate around that in a very productive way about it. I think then it's very, very uh, good to, but if you still get concerned about use this Twitter in a way that, to me, is more about reproducing the stereotypes, uh, reproducing the very things that we are trying to contest, it's not product. then it's not helpful. When you talk about it, I'm also hearing your voice that you're also talking about the time that people will be sometimes spent on it rather than use the time in a different way. 
Mr. George Day, thank you so much for your time uh, and talking to Rappers Republic. We really appreciate your perspective, uh, and we would love to have you uh, back on the show uh, sometime in the future. Uh, thanks again for talking to us and your valuable insights. Thanks very much, and I think we need to have this collective dialogue. It's a painful dialogue. It talks about our collective complicities. It talks about also our collective responsibilities in addressing the issue that we, we want to talk about. It's also very important that we point to the intersections or the intersectionality of the struggles. I think what is happening in the U.S. cannot just be something that is happening in the U.S. We have to look at inside how we have the manifestations of that in Canada, in Africa, in Europe. Recently, I spoke about Black Lives Matter and an African perspective. I'm not speaking the point that if we talk about Black Lives Matter, it also has to be discussed on the African context because we are implicated in that. But also, when we look at what is happening on the continent where we have leadership that uh, hardly gives uh, a damn about your own people, right? You can't talk about Black Lives Matter when your own people's lives are not being taken seriously. So the idea of having this collective dimension to the issues that we talk about, the transnational dimensions to it, I think is very, 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 very important. Because at the end of the day, what we are all looking for is a better world. And I believe powerfully that we need to think about something different is possible. Something different is possible. That's a, that's a wonderful way to end it. Uh, thank you again for your time. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. At American Public University, we believe higher education is not one size fits all. That's why we offer 200 modern programs that build on your knowledge and fit your schedule. Because we believe universities should adapt to the needs of students, not the other way around. American Public University. Within reach, without limits. Online classes start every month. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com.